This is a Rooster Teeth production. October 21st, 2009. Northwest Airlines Flight 188, an Airbus A320 with 149 people on board, is at cruising altitude on a flight from San Diego, California to Minneapolis, Minnesota. The aircraft passes over Denver, Colorado, then goes silent. Air traffic control can see the plane on radar, but attempts to reach the crew are unsuccessful. Nearby planes, the airline, and air traffic control all try to contact the crew but receive no response. The White House is briefed on the situation and fighter jets are put on alert and start to scramble. Finally, after the aircraft has passed Minneapolis and 78 minutes of silence have gone by, the crew respond to the radio. October 20th, 1986. Aeroflot Flight 6502, a Tupolev Tu-134A with 94 people on board, is about to land at Grozny Airport in the Soviet Union. While on final approach, the pilot makes a wager with the co-pilot that he can land the aircraft with the curtains closed. He proceeds to close the aircraft's curtains and attempts to land the plane. What happens when flight crews become distracted or become negligent in their duties? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi. I, I heard about this one before. Oh, have you? Which one? The second one with the trying to land the plane with the curtains. Oh, yeah. Spoiler, it doesn't go well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be talking about it if it went well. Well, I mean, you want to see the runway when you're landing, ideally. <laughs> you, yeah. you want to be able to see that before you make your landing. Also, there are curtains on a plane? Uh, on the Tupolev, I guess there were. <laughs> Why? It's Well, it's an older plane. Maybe it's like to block glare. Like, okay. Or maybe if like to keep it uh, from getting too hot whenever it's parked. It could be. Yeah. I never even looked up what these curtains look like. I'm curious to see now. <laughs> I can see photos of the cockpit. I don't see where the curtains are. Maybe that's one of the things that they learned afterwards when they did a... <laughs> They're like, we, we, let's get rid of these curtains. There's, <laughs> there's no reason for these. <laughs> Before we get into it, of course, I want to um, remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod. Uh, we always post images and supplementary uh, material there. In particular, this one's interesting. You know, of course, there's not going to be many pictures for, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but there are photos of the Aeroflot flight, that one where the, the pilot closed the curtains. There were photos that were taken in secret and like smuggled out. Oh, secret pictures. Just because it, <laughs> it was a crash in the Soviet Union and they kind of like, there really isn't a full report on this. You know, they, they don't really... It's not the same as a crash that happens in yeah, other places. Yeah. The fire chief who responded took some photos in secret and smuggled them out from the site. And so they're not, there's not like super high resolution or anything, but uh, you should check them out. It's, it's still interesting to see. Uh, if you follow us on social media, we'll post those. But before we get to that one, we're going to talk about the other one, Northwest Airlines Flight 188. Okay. It was a regularly scheduled passenger flight, like I said, from San Diego, California to Minneapolis, Minnesota, not that long ago, October 21st, 2009. The flight was crewed by Captain Timothy Cheney, who was 53 years old with about 20,000 hours of flight time, and First Officer Richard Cole, who was 54 with about 11,000 flight hours. It's an Airbus A320. There were three flight attendants and 144 passengers on board the flight as well. So they took off from San Diego around 3.01 p.m. Pacific time, which is 5.01 p.m. Central time, and they were scheduled to land at 8.01 Central Time in Minneapolis. So it's about a three-hour flight. Exactly. Exactly a three-hour flight. Okay. They climbed up to their cruising altitude of 37,000 feet. And almost two hours later, at 6.56 p.m. Central Time, air traffic control lost radio contact with them as they were flying over Denver. Denver air traffic control instructed the crew to contact the Minneapolis Center to obtain uh, amended clearance to land, but they did not receive a reply. 
Both Denver Center and Minneapolis Center made several unsuccessful attempts to contact Flight 188. Minneapolis Center then asked Northwest Dispatch, so the airline, they call the airline, and asked the dispatchers mm-hmm. at the airline to try to contact the flight as well. Uh, the dispatchers make eight attempts to urge the pilots to establish radio contact, but they're unsuccessful. Other pilots flying in the area also tried to establish contact, but they couldn't get a hold of them either. They disappeared. They know the plane's there. They can see it on radar, but they're just not oh. responding. They're giving them the huh. silent treatment. <laughs> So Northwest also even sent them a radio text to the crew that went unanswered. And at 7.58 Central Time, which is about three minutes before they're supposed to land, they flew over the Minneapolis airport and they kept going northeast for another what? 100 miles. Yeah, they flew right over the airport. So Are they asleep? Well, we don't know. They're not <laughs> answering. So the authorities, you know, are obviously concerned about this. Uh-huh. And the North American Aerospace Defense Command, you know, popularly known as NORAD, began to scramble fighter jets to check on the plane. And the White House Situation Room was alerted about uh, what was going on. Just as the fighter jets were about to take off, the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport established radio contact with the flight at 8.14 p.m. Central. So this is 13 minutes after they're supposed to land. The plane's already passed the airport. Uh-huh. They finally get in contact with them again. How long had it been? An hour and a, hour and a half? Since their last contact with anyone? Yeah. It had been about an hour and 18 minutes since okay. uh, they last had contact with someone. So they finally get in touch with them, and the crew says that they became distracted and overflew the airport. And they Mm. requested to return and land. At this point, they're flying over Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And I've got a transcript here from the air traffic control and the pilots. So air traffic control says, You can stay right here on this frequency, and I have to verify that the cockpit is secure. The pilot replies, It is secure. We got distracted. We were, uh, never heard a call. We were just, and it's unintelligible. Air traffic Uh control says, do you have enough fuel to hold or do you need to get into Minneapolis? Pilots say, we're good on fuel. We could hold. We'd just as soon as able go right if we could. Air traffic control says, is there any way you can elaborate on the distraction? And the pilots say, we're just dealing with some company issues here. And that's all I can tell you right now at this time. Oh. So vague. Yeah. Later, the pilots went, you know, there's a, they, the, they're interviewed once they land. And the pilots say that at this point, they just wanted to focus on getting the plane landed. And they were going to explain it later. Uh-huh. They didn't want to explain it at this point. But you can tell air traffic controls asking them, you know, what happened? Can you elaborate? You know, like, we need to know more. Yeah. And in fact, the um, air traffic control instructs them, you know, instead of just turning them around immediately, air traffic control has them perform some specific maneuvers to make sure, one, that... The air traffic control is tracking the correct plane on their screen. And two, uh-huh. that the pilots are still in control of the plane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like they weren't hijacked and being forced to... Right. So they make them make a few turns and, you know, change altitude a few times. And then they're satisfied. And then they uh, they let them come in and, uh, and land in Minneapolis. At this point, so the White House was notified. Are there? You said there were, like, fighter jets following them? They hadn't taken off yet. They were starting to scramble. Like, they were alerting fighter jets that they were going to have to okay. go check on this plane. They had not yet taken off, but yes, uh, they were at that point. That's crazy to think that it escalates that quickly in an hour. Honestly, it should have happened faster, in my opinion. Don't you think? They'd already passed the airport they were supposed to land at by this point. Yeah, but it's just crazy to think that, I guess putting it in a different perspective, like if I'm driving somewhere and I drive, miss my exit because I'm distracted and I drive past the, the place... White House isn't notified. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just like, it's funny to think in that short amount of time that like the White House learns about it. Like, I think after, after, you know, September 11th. This is is after 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, they're a lot more concerned about aircraft going rogue. Yeah. 
the plane actually did land safely at Minneapolis at 9.04 p.m. Central Time, which is an hour and three minutes late, which is maybe the worst reason to be late landing at an airport is because your pilots forgot to land. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Uh, this is your yeah. captain speaking. Uh, we forgot to land. Uh, we're gonna yeah. be about we forgot late. where we were going. <laughs> so the day after the incident, the NTSB released a statement saying the crew was interviewed by the FBI and airport police. The crew stated that they were in a heated discussion over airline policy and they lost situational awareness. What? The NTSB said they were scheduling their own interviews and they're investigating the cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, of course. Mm -hmm. A few days later, on October 26th, the NTSB released an overview of their pilot interviews. And they interviewed both pilots separately and the NTSB, you know, gathered this information from them. Both pilots said they'd never had an accident, incident, or violation, so they had, you know, clean records. Neither pilot had any ongoing medical conditions. Both pilots stated that they were not fatigued. They were both commuters, but they had had a 19-hour layover in San Diego before this flight. And they say they did not fall asleep or doze during the flight. So to answer your earlier question, Mm. they say that they did not. Both said there was no heated argument, even though they said there was a heated discussion. They, They specify it was not a heated argument. Just a discussion. Both stated there was a distraction in the cockpit. The pilot said there was a concentrated period of discussion where they did not monitor the airplane or calls from air traffic control, even though both stated they heard conversation on the radio. Also, neither pilot noticed messages that were sent by company dispatchers. What they were discussing was the new monthly flight crew scheduling system that was now in place as a result of a merger because Northwest had recently merged with Delta. Uh So they were going over, according to them, they were going over this new scheduling system for filling out their work schedules. The co-pilot was more familiar with it than the pilot, and they were trying to figure it out. Okay. Apparently, their discussion began at cruising altitude, and they both say they just lost track of time. Well, how complicated was <laughs> I, I don't know. Each pilot accessed and used his personal laptop computer while they discussed the airline crew flight scheduling procedure. The first officer who was more familiar with the procedure was providing instruction to the captain. The use of personal computers on the flight deck is prohibited by company policy. Ooh. So they were talking about it. Yeah, and they brought out their laptops. They're like, all right, let's go over this. You know, you don't want to do that. Yeah, it's texting and driving. Right, but worse, way but worse. worse. Neither pilot was aware of the airplane's position until a flight attendant called about five minutes before they were scheduled to land and asked what their estimated time of arrival was. The captain said at that point, he looked at his primary flight display for an ETA, and that's when he realized they had passed Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, They made contact with air traffic control, and they were given vectors back to Minneapolis-St. Paul. Okay. So, you know, we've talked before about, like, the autopilot and the different modes it goes into. You know, when they're cruising, it was in nav mode to take them through the different nav points to get them to the airport. Uh But... Since they had flown past the airport, it had switched from nav mode to heading mode. And it was doing that thing where it was just maintaining a heading. Since, you know, according to the, the autopilot, it did what it needed to do. It got them to yeah, the nav so point. Yeah, it was like, all right, we're here. Yeah, they didn't update anything. So it just switches to heading mode. Like, all right, I guess they just want to keep going in this direction. At cruising altitude, the pilot stated they were using cockpit speakers to listen to radio communication and not their headsets. So they'd taken their headsets off. Oh. And we're running the air traffic control through the speakers in the cockpit, which is allowed was allowed by the airline. The company policy did allow them to do that. They probably had it turned way down. They may have. When asked by air traffic control what the problem was, they replied, just cockpit distraction and dealing with company issues. Both pilots said there are no procedures for the flight attendants to check on the pilots during the flight. So according to them, they were there, not sleeping. They were just going over the new scheduling system, using their personal laptops with their headsets off and... Uh, Lost track of time. 
got distracted. Mm-hmm. So, like we said, they say they were not sleeping. Uh, and in the United States, the FAA prohibits pilots from taking short naps. But airlines from other countries do allow short naps while outside of U.S. airspace. Airlines you've heard of, like British Airways, Qantas, Air France. Mm-hmm. But that's not allowed in U.S. airspace. Okay. The cockpit voice recorder was removed from this plane for examination, mm-hmm. but this was one of those CVRs with only 30 minutes worth of information. Oh. So over an hour of information would have been needed for all of the part of the flight where they flew past Minneapolis. So since it was only the last 30 minutes, it was really only after they realized they'd overflown the oh, man. airport. Right. So you're never going to know because the CVR only captured the last 30 minutes. I bet you they knew that too. It's very possible, right? We've dealt with pilots who try to disable CVRs or know that what the buffer is and try to, you know, pad that buffer out to hide things. Mm. I'm not saying that they did it, but we have seen that happen in incidents in the past. Man, I want to know. I want to know the juicy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so the NTSB statements said the flight attendants would be interviewed as well. Also, they obtained the air traffic control communications to be analyzed. And they presented some preliminary data from the cockpit voice recorder. And they said, you know, like we talked about, the recording was half an hour in length. The cockpit area microphone channel was not working. However, the cruise headset microphones recorded their conversations. Mm. The recording began during the final approach and continued while the aircraft was at the gate. And then to make matters worse, during the hours immediately following the incident flight, routine aircraft maintenance provided power to the cockpit voice recorder for a few minutes on several occasions, which recorded over even more of the earlier portion of the flight. So there really wasn't even 30 minutes worth of data on there. Dang it. The flight data recorder captured the entire flight, which contained several hundred aircraft parameters, including the portion of the flight where there was no communication uh, from the flight crew. But of course, the plane was just in autopilot mode the whole time, so there there was really nothing super insightful there. On October 27th, 2009, the FAA revoked the licenses from both pilots, saying they operated the aircraft in a reckless manner that endangered the lives and property of others. The FAA said their revocation cites several violations of regulations, including failure to comply with air traffic control and clearances and operating carelessly and recklessly. If you get your license revoked like that, is there a way to petition to get it back or is that it? There is a a process. So after their licenses were revoked, they did have 10 days to appeal the revocations. And then, you know, they go through an appeal process. And then, you know, if it's revoked, ultimately they can go through a process to uh, reobtain their license uh, eventually, depending on whatever their punishment is. Yeah. So a couple months later, on March 18th, 2010, the NTSB released another statement that kind of acts as final conclusions for the incident. The NTSB determined that Northwest Airlines Flight 188 overflew its destination airport of Minneapolis by more than 100 miles and failed to maintain radio communications because the pilots became distracted by a conversation unrelated to the operation of the aircraft. The NTSB's accident brief also noted air traffic control shortcomings during the event, and the board issued two safety recommendations to address those shortcomings. Can I guess one of them? (laughs) Okay. That air traffic control can contact the people outside of the cockpit? Oh, that's an interesting one. No, that is not one. But that would be that would be interesting. Look, look at you. That's like have 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 like have like a special radio or a special line, right? Yeah. No, that is not a thing that exists, and that was not one of them. But. That's an interesting suggestion, Chris. Because because then then even if someone ever tried to like got into the cockpit or something like a or something happened in the cockpit and it's locked, they might be able to contact one of the flight attendants. Yeah, it would be. I mean, there's obviously security implications with that. Uh, you know, people getting on it unnecessarily. But uh, you can make it like a kind of communication with no talkback. We can only listen. Where like mm-hmm. air traffic control could tell flight attendants like, "Hey, check on the pilot" or something like that. Yeah, 
but because I wouldn't want someone getting a hold of it and like jamming other air traffic control. Anyway, it, it, there there would be things to, to 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 figure out. It can only be a two way communication if air traffic control enables it. Right, like they have to start the conversation or yeah. something. But no, that was not one of them. I'll I'll, I'll go ahead and, and go over the ones that they did say though. On October 21st, 2009, Northwest Airlines Flight 188, an Airbus A320 operating as a scheduled flight between San Diego and Minneapolis, did not communicate with air traffic control for approximately one hour and 17 minutes. While in this Nordo state, Nordo means no radio, it flew past its intended destination at a cruise altitude of 37,000 feet. The crew subsequently reestablished radio communication and landed without further incident. There were no injuries. I mean, I guess it's a bright spot, right? There were no injuries. At least it was just like a dumb brain fart, and people were just mm-hmm. a little delayed. The NTSB said that the pilots continued to fly through several air traffic control sectors without replying to any radio commands. The investigation found that the pilots had become engaged in a conversation dealing with the process by which pilots request flight schedules, and during the conversation, each was using his personal laptop computer, contrary to company policy. Mm. The pilots were not aware of the repeated attempts by air traffic controllers and the airline to contact them until a flight attendant used the intercom to inquire about the progress of the flight. Can you imagine being that flight attendant looking at your watch being like, I feel like we should be landing by now, right? <laughs> It's like, do I call the cockpit? Like, no, no. They would tell me. Like, surely they know that they know. Right? They, they're flying the plane. Like, like, I can't imagine being in that position. Like, if I call, they're gonna tell me I'm stupid. But we should be landing right now. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how many of the flight attendants were talking. Like, should should we check on them? I don't know. I don't, you know, like right? Did they have like a huddle? Like, no, you like, call them. No, you call them. <laughs> The NTSB also found that the lack of national requirements for recording air traffic control instructions when using automated flight tracking systems, such as directing an aircraft to switch frequencies or to indicate that an aircraft has checked in on an assigned frequency, was a factor in the controller's delay in performing necessary actions and notifications required by lost communication procedures. In addition, because Nordo events of a short duration are not uncommon, the safety board found that the controllers and managers may have become complacent in completing necessary Nordo actions and required notifications in a timely manner. So basically, things are a little too automated. No radio events do happen for brief periods of time. Maybe people were complacent. This should have been escalated a little more quickly. Uh As a result of deficiencies in air traffic control communication procedures revealed in this investigation and an accident involving a Pilatus PC-1245 that crashed in Butte, Montana on March 22, 2009, the safety board is making recommendations to the FAA to address the following issues. The lack of standard procedures for identifying flight crew air traffic control communications in ATC facilities that use automated flight tracking systems. The lack of standard phraseology for identifying the emergency nature of emergency air traffic control radio transmissions. That last one's interesting. It's like, maybe they need to develop phrases to catch people's attention, to alert them Hmm. to emergency. That way it's not just like background noise. Like, even if you have it on in the background, if you hear like an emergency code word, you're like, oh, I need to listen to Orange monkey eagle. (laughs) Right. Like a safe word. Yeah, safe word. <laughs> I was also wondering, it's like, if this might be a thing, if there's some sort of code, if you did have a hijack or something that you could say that's not like a alerting word, like, oh, we're just, you know. It's funny you ask that. Pilots can actually set their transponder to a special signal, to a different frequency. And if air right. traffic control sees the transponder on a different frequency, then they know that the plane is hijacked. Oh, sneaky. Yeah, and unless you're a pilot or like someone really familiar with flying these planes, you're not going to notice that. Mm-mm. That's cool. If it's an emergency, I think it's 7,500 that they set it to for a hijack. And uh, if it's 7,700, it just means emergency. Like I have a an app on my phone that tracks... Uh, you're going to learn a little more about me, Chris. I have an app on my phone <laughs> that tracks uh, whenever there's a declared emergency for a flight anywhere in the world. 
And oh. I'll see that frequently. I'll see like, you know, when transponders squawk 7700, I'll get an alert on my phone and I'll see what it is. I'll see the kind of plane and I'll see where it's located. I can click on the alert, I get on my phone and see like a map of it. And, and you can, can you hear it? No, I can't. Oh, I guess I could, if I went to the website I told you about before, I could listen to the air traffic control in that area. But normally I just, I just look at it on my phone. But anyway, similar to that, like I said, 7700 is emergency, 7500 is hijack. There's a couple others. But yeah, it is possible to alert them using these transponder codes when something's wrong, you know, and if you don't want to talk out loud. Mm -hmm. After spending years of being stuck in fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, I learned there's always a catch. So when I first heard about Mint Mobile's premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month, I was suspicious, of course, you know, what was the catch? Well, after trying it out, it turns out there is not one. In fact, Mint Mobile's secret sauce is they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. Cut out retail stores so there's no crazy overhead costs that get passed down to you in the form of mystery fees. Instead, Mint has those sweet savings directly to you. I tried it out for myself. The service is just as good as what I had before. Super easy. I could keep my phone. I just had to pop a new SIM into my uh, phone. I just had to pop out the old one, put the new one in. I think it took me 30 seconds maybe. Oh, well, I had to reboot my phone too. But it's so quick. The service is just as good and it costs way less. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any plan, keep your same number and your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash blackboxdown. That's mintmobile.com slash blackboxdown. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash blackboxdown. There's nothing quite like summer nights, the gentle breezes, symphonies of animals and insects, the warming glow of a campfire, and realizing how you reek of smoke from the campfire when you finally go back indoors. Well, scratch that last one because Solo Stove is a smokeless fire pit, so you can have all the joys of gathering around a fire without the messy cleanup and nasty smoke. It's actually a super beautiful fire pit, and it's so easy to use. And in addition to how great it looks and how beautiful it is, on top of all of that, the cherry on top, it doesn't leave you smelling smoky. Absolutely wonderful. Solo Stove stainless steel construction designed to regulate airflow, burn more efficiently. There's so little smoke, you'll wonder how there's so much fire. It's easy to light, easy to keep lit, even easier to clean. I also love Solo Stove fire pits are portable and built to last. You can take them on whatever adventures you get up to this summer. Seriously, just toss it in your backseat or your trunk. If you're going out camping or you're going to go hang out somewhere else, it's super portable. Awesome. No one needs a reason to gather around the fire. Solo Stove just took away any reason not to. And now you can get $10 off when you use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at checkout. Just go to solostove.com. Remember, you can get $10 off when you use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. Hate to break it to you, but if you're online shopping without Honey, you're straight up doing it wrong. Like, disturbingly wrong, but don't worry, we can fix this. Honey is the free online shopping tool that scours the internet and search your promo codes and applies the best one it can find to your cart. All you have to do is install it to your browser. You're ready to save because Honey is that easy to use. Seriously, all you do is fill up your cart at one of over 30,000 online stores. And when you go to checkout, the Honey button drops down. All you have to do is click Apply Coupons. You wait a couple seconds while Honey searches all the coupons you can find for that site. And if Honey finds a working code, you watch the prices drop. Seriously, it's so easy. I bought some jeans the other day and I wasn't even thinking about it. Then it popped up. I was like, oh yeah, I got to click on this thing and just save money instantly. I didn't have to even think about it. I didn't have to do anything. I, I mean, I guess I had to click a button, but it's so easy. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast Never recommend something I don't use, so get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. So anyway, back to this specific incident. Previously, the safety board has addressed the potential hazards created by the use of personal electronic devices by transportation operators. 
Following the board's investigation of the Colgan Air 3407 accident near Buffalo, New York, we covered that one. I don't know if you remember. That's the one where they stalled and crashed into um, some houses. Oh, were, were they trying to figure out what the... They thought they were iced over, and then they ended up crashing. That's the one where the whole crash site was frozen over after the firefighters put the fire out, mm. and they had to, like, break the entire plane out of ice in order to recover it. Wow. That one, if you remember, the, the pilots were commuting, and they weren't getting proper sleep, so they were fatigued. But anyway, this incident, they're referencing that crash. And they say because of that, they issued a safety recommendation to the FAA to require all part 121, 135, and 91K operators to incorporate explicit guidance to pilots, including checklist reminders as appropriate, prohibiting the use of personal portable electronic devices on the flight deck. And the reason they're referencing flight 3407, I don't know if we covered this when we did that episode, was that the co-pilot had sent a text message five minutes after it pulled away from the gate, just a few minutes before takeoff. They said, you know, we know already pilots shouldn't be doing this. We need to make it explicitly clear pilots cannot use personal portable electronic devices. Mm. And then they go on. There's, there's some more here I'm going to read from uh, their report. Recent accidents and incidents such as the midair collision over the Hudson River last August. This was uh, a plane and a helicopter collided over the Hudson River. They collided because their traffic controller was on a personal phone call. So they, they referenced that one. Uh-huh. Colgan Air Flight 3407. And the Northwest pilots' overflight of the Minnesota airport have demonstrated the clear hazards to aviation safety when pilots and air traffic controllers depart from standard operating procedures and establish best practices. So they're just saying this has happened a few times. And these all mm-hmm. happened really close to each other. I think these were all 2009, 2010. I wonder if it's just because of the like what people are able to do in the plane. It's like people can use the internet more and like there's more distractions available around that time i think so because if you remember like smartphones like we know them today like the first iphone came out in 2007 yeah which is a couple years before this like by 2009 2010 that's when like you know there's androids out there iphones are becoming more common Mm -hmm. i think you're just seeing that technology a lot more there's also wi-fi on planes that's really starting to be rolled out around then so yeah i think it's just this is something that they saw. It was happening a lot at this point. So they knew they had to do something to mm-hmm. explicitly prohibit it to stop these accidents from happening. Yeah. On March 15th, 2010, CNN released an article regarding the pilots' attempt to keep their licenses. Uh, under a settlement with the FAA, the pilots will not contest their license revocation, but they can, like you asked, they can reapply for their licenses in 10 months instead of 12, the agency said. Okay. The FAA declined to say why it settled, but the settlement preempted the need for an appeal hearing, which could have resulted in protracted litigation. Hmm. So if they did reapply for their licenses, they would need to take the test required of new pilots and they would need simulator training to get certificates allowing them to pilot commercial planes. So yeah, they would basically be almost starting over. (laughs) They would be uh, taking a lot of tests and doing simulators. Starting over minus the fact that they already know most of the material. Right. They'd have to do a refresh. So I figured you were going to ask if they did fly again yeah i was going (laughs) (laughs) we spent a lot of time trying to look this up and it's very difficult to find clear answers i can tell you definitively that the pilot timothy cheney he chose to retire he Mm. took a retirement and stopped after that how old was he he was 53 okay as far as richard cole i really couldn't find any information i know that a, a spokesperson for the airline said that he was no longer employed by the airline but i don't know if he's flying somewhere else or or what happened to him hmm But that's it for that one for Northwest 188. I think that's a really interesting one. I remember when this happened. It wasn't that long ago. And I remember just being like really, I couldn't believe it that a plane would just fly past its 
airport. <laughs> it's still baffling to me. Even, you know, uh, I remember you know, kind of lightly following it in the news when it happened, but we spent a lot more time looking into it, you know, for this to talk about it today. And it's just, it's even more baffling. The more you like try to dig into it, it's like, I don't understand how this happened. Like even when I told you like earlier, when the autopilot switches from nav to heading mode, it makes a noise. Like <laughs> there's, there's alerts and things going on. The radio was going on. The people are saying their flight number and they're not responding. Is it possible to turn it all the way down or something? Or like the radio? I don't know. I, I assume you can adjust the volume. I don't know how low you can turn it. I don't, I don't get that. There's something suspicious going on. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But, and, and like you said, you know, we're never going to know. We're not going to know the juicy stuff because the copy voice recorder only lasted for 30 minutes. Maybe it was really, what if it was really boring and they're just like, oh, I just don't understand the scheduling system. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just like, 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 can you imagine like trying to give tech support to a parent? It's like that for the whole time. <laughs> it's like trying to close, like, how? why do you have Google Chrome install five times on your laptop? <laughs> like, <laughs> But at least like we said before, nobody was hurt. Everybody was able, they were, people were just a little delayed. Yeah. Contrast that, however, oh. with Aeroflot 6502, which was a Soviet domestic passenger flight from uh, Kolsovo Airport in a town that was previously known as Sverdlovsk, uh, which is now known as Yekaterinburg. That's where it originated. Okay. And it was flying to Grozny Airport, which I believe is in Chechnya. And had a stopover at Kuromach Airport, uh, this was back, like I said, October 20th, 1986. So this was still, like I said, the Soviet Union. This was still when the Cold War was going on. Uh, and as a result, like I said before, there's no official report. There's nothing. If there is an official report, it's not something we can just look up online. Um, not like these other ones. If there is a, an actual report that was written, it's probably only exists on paper and it's probably in a file cabinet somewhere in Russia. But, you know, we're going to talk about what we do know and what we are able to find out about this flight. Okay. So this flight was crewed by Captain Alexander Klyuyev, First Officer Gennady Zirnov, Navigating Officer Ivan Mokonko, and Flight Engineer Kyuri Kamzatov. Is that four? four? Yes. So it's the Pilot, First Officer, Navigating Officer, and Flight Engineer. And what year was this? 86. This is also, well, I mean... I guess it was still not an old plane at the time, but this plane was built in June 28th, 1979. So it's still a slightly older plane. There were three flight attendants and 87 passengers on board as well. It's wild to me that there's more people in the cockpit than there are flight attendants. There's four people in the cockpit <laughs> and there's three flight attendants. It, it seems wrong to me. So while approaching Kuromach Airport, the captain made a bet with the first officer that he, the captain, could make an instrument-only approach with the curtains covering the cockpit windows. They were lined up for runway 15, and they were above the glide slope during their approach, but they were within limits. The ground proximity warning went off around 200 feet above the ground, which would be their decision altitude to know whether or not to land. And at uh -huh. this point on a normal flight, if you don't see the runway, you don't land. <laughs> you go around. Yeah. However, because of this bet, the crew ignored the warning and they continued with their approach. So the bet was exact. It was just, can you land without with the curtains closed? No one bet. The, cap the captain made up this bet on his own. He said, hey, I bet you I can land the plane with the curtains closed. And they were like, prove it. They were like, yeah, they're probably, okay, do it. No one tried to stop him? At the last second, the first officer did open the curtains, but it was too late at that point. They were pretty much on the ground at that when he uh, opened up the curtains. But yeah, I guess they were letting him do it. Oh my God. So the aircraft crossed the runway threshold at a height of about 10 meters, which is about 33 feet. Oh, uh, here it is. One second before landing, it was the engineer who opened the curtains. So it's probably the captain and the first officer talking about this is the engineer sitting behind them like oh my god they're actually doing it he probably reached over them and 
pulled open the curtains. Uh-huh. However, there was not enough time for the captain to, you know, account for that. The aircraft touched down hard at a speed of 150 knots, which is 173 miles an hour or 278 kilometers an hour. Uh, 132 meters or 433 feet past the runway threshold at a vertical speed of 5 meters per second, which is 16.5 feet per second, 11 miles an hour or 18 kilometers an hour. So it touched down, you know, that vertical speed. Uh It hit the ground at 11 miles an hour. Average landing speed should be about 4.5 miles an hour or 2 meters a second or 6.6 feet a second or 7.2 kilometers an hour. Anything faster than those numbers is considered a hard landing. So they landed... Super hard. I mean, almost tripled the speed that they should have been. Two and a half times the speed that they should have been. Where exactly are they? You said they're past the runway. How far is it still? Past the threshold. So like past the beginning of the runway, I should say. Okay. So they're they're on the runway. Okay. They're basically 433 feet down the runway. Like I said, they landed hard, which created about 4.8 Gs of force when they hit the ground. The left wing collapsed, which spilled fuel uh, and then ignited. The plane then rolled around its longitudinal axis and came to rest 70 meters or 230 feet to the left of the runway, upside down and on fire. Oh, my God. 63 people died during the accident and seven more passed away later in the hospital. The first officer attempted to save people from the crash, uh, but while on the way to the hospital, he suffered a heart attack and he passed away. Oh. The captain was prosecuted and sentenced to 15 years in prison. and uh, That sentence was later reduced to six years. What was it? Criminal negligence or something? I mean, I mean, yeah, uh, I think the pilots in the United States. I mean, there wasn't a criminal prosecution, but they were they were they were charged with being negligent, you know, neglecting their duties. This is definitely the you know, people got killed here. Yeah, this is you know way different for no reason. Yeah, like I said, there's really no report about this. That's really the extent of the information that exists about it. But we wanted to talk about it in an episode. This is this is this this incident's been on our list for a long time. But there's really no no way we could do a whole episode about it. So we thought, oh, well, we're doing this Northwest Airlines about uh-huh. people not paying attention or being negligent. We can kind of bundle it together here and talk about it. But it's just wild to me that the captain just like no regard for safety. I, I can't imagine being that confident about anything in my life. I, like, I wouldn't want to drive my car with my eyes closed. Oh, yeah. My car, I have a fancy car and it has like a cell, like an autopilot kind of thing. I don't even trust that thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't even like turning that thing on, much less closing my eyes and letting that go. Uh, I can't imagine. And this guy was was trying to land using his instruments, you know, on this runway for no reason. He could see. There was no no reason to With do this. With a buttload of people in the plane. Yep. Ended up, I mean, a lot of people died because of it, because of this bravado. Most of the people on this flight died from it. I can't imagine surviving this so i mean what are we told like all told there were 94 people on this flight 87 passengers three flight attendants four people on the deck and then 70 of them passed away the engineer the other i guess they weren't in charge so i guess they weren't couldn't be responsible or could they have been like hey don't do this like right i mean there's there's not much information about that i would say probably not since it was not their job to fly the plane Mm -hmm. you know they have to defer to the pilots yeah but yeah, that's it. That's uh, Aeroflot 6502 and Northwest 188. Uh, hopefully, you never encounter a pilot like this <laughs> whenever yeah. you're flying. But I think, uh, you know, the Aeroflot one, obviously, you're not going to encounter that. That's yeah. a total fluke. But as far as like the the Northwest one, you know, the there are now rules where the flight crew cannot use personal electronic devices and 
things like this should not happen again. Yeah. Which is what we always want to hear, that, that people learned and that things have changed. Mm-hmm. So thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget, follow us on social media at BlackBoxDownPod. You know what? What's that? People can listen to this podcast with their eyes closed. So. Oh, you, you can <laughs> share this podcast with someone who likes to close their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> people like to listen to this podcast uh, when they sleep. So people who, who uh, have trouble sleeping just like to listen to something. It's way better than, uh, I don't know, watching TV or something. You put on a podcast, close your eyes. Yeah. It's like we're talking. We're whispering in your ears. Hey, uh, why don't you take a little nap? Yeah. You, you treat yourself. Uh, I do want to remind people we have a um, special event coming up on July 17th at 1 o'clock Central Time. What is that? 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be doing a, uh, a panel for an event called RTX. It's uh, a virtual event. And if you go to rtxevent.com, you can learn all about it. And you can listen live as uh, we do something. We do a special episode that we're going to be uh, live streaming at that time. Well, actually, we have two events. Oh, you're right. That's right. We have another like um, shared panel that's on Thursday, July 15th at Mm -hmm. 12 Central, which is 10 a.m. Pacific or 1 p.m. Eastern. We're doing a collaborative event with a couple other podcasters. Yeah. That panel is called Cults, Crashes, and Conspiracies. Yeah. I believe we're doing that one with... uh, the Red Web podcast and the uh, Cult podcast, if I'm remembering mm-hmm. correctly. Yeah, it's correct. It's our friends from Red Web and Cult podcast. Yeah, uh, check that one out uh, if you want to hear about podcasting in general. And then if you want to hear about Black Box Down specifically, that one is on July 17th at 1 p.m. Central. Uh, live streamed, they're free, right? You don't have to pay yeah. for them or anything. Just go to rtxevent.com if you want to learn more about those. But uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with another new episode. And uh, maybe we'll you'll get to hear us live in a couple of weeks as well. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.